good to see you all. We're going to study God's Word together as we continue to worship, so I hope you got a Bible with you. If you'd open it up to Esther chapter 9, as we study God's Word together, we're really wrapping up um, our study in the book of Esther. I hope it's been an encouragement to you as we walk through this wonderful book in the Old Testament. Um, this is more text, so then, then I'm going to have time to read. It's 8 and 9 and 10. If I read the whole thing in its entirety, I wouldn't have much time left to talk about it, so... Uh, so you can go back and read some of it later on, but I would ask you to look at chapter nine. I'm going to read verse one in just a second and then leave your Bible open because we're going to be flipping around to see some things that are going on in eight and nine and 10, even though we're not going to read the whole thing at once. So chapter nine, verse one, I think if there's just one verse in this whole three chapter section that summarizes the, uh, the last moment, the, the, the climactic scene and the, the denouement, you know, the, the, the resolution, then I think it's right here in Esther 9, verse 1, and it reads this way. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar, on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. I love those words, on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. I've used this language all through this Esther series of surprising reversals because we keep seeing that happen, especially these last couple of chapters, these these twist endings, these built-in turning points in the narrative of the story. You know, an interesting fact from history from just nearly a century ago is that uh, the Jews who, who were a part of and saw the rise of Nazism in Germany and in Europe, they cherished the book of Esther. And you could even see why that is, right? They were seeing Haman's final solution uh, recapitulated in their own time. And so they clung to this with with deep hope. Matter of fact, there were many Jews who in the 1930s saw this thing going that way and they saw the winds moving in that direction and they began to internalize the book of Esther and memorize the book of Esther. Hitler eventually banned the book of Esther. And if anyone was found in one of the camps with a copy or shred of the book of Esther, they'd be shot on sight instantly because the book of Esther was deeply troubling to Hitler. Matter of fact, in one of his speeches in 1944, this is when the ball was bouncing away from Hitler and the Nazi regime right there toward the end, and, and he said, listen, if we lose this thing, there's gonna be a second Purim feast for the Jews, which was his way of saying, we cannot let these people, the Jews, have the last laugh. We cannot let them feast again like they did when Haman botched it years and years ago. Let's get this right and let's keep them from having the last laugh. And speaking of laughing, so one of the things that we've seen is that the book of Esther is written with, a, uh, with dark humor, right? There is satire. It is humor that's intended to expose folly and foolishness. And it, it's, there's comedy built into the strangest moments for us. Sometimes you're reading it and it's like, okay, so... Uh, Haman is about to die, and it's like the writer and the storyteller is telling the story in a way that we're supposed to laugh about this, right? And it's, I don't know if you experience this, but sometimes when I'm reading through the book of Esther, I'm like, are we really laughing right now? Because, I mean, this guy is 
stumbling forward toward Esther and he's gonna die for this, right? Remember the, the ancient Targum, the rabbi who wrote a commentary about that moment when Haman was falling toward Esther's couch and he said playfully, angel Gabriel pushed him, right? So there's this kind of whole history of comedy, dark comedy around this issue, right? But you think about it. Um, my, there was a movie that, you know, everybody watched when I was a kid and well, well before I was a kid and it was uh, The Wizard of Oz. And I hated The Wizard of Oz. How many of you saw The Wizard of Oz? I, I, I still, when I just hear the music, I just like, oh, that's scary, right? As a, as a kid, that was the way it, it felt to me. But here's the thing, like you watch The Wizard of Oz and the Wicked Witch of whichever, I can't remember if she's the East or the West, the one that dies in the cyclone and the house falls. Um, so when the house falls on her, you know, they don't sing a dirge about how, you know, what a wasted opportunity. She could have lived a better life or if she hadn't grown up in such a, you know, a witchy culture or environment, you know, everything could have been different. No, they don't sing a dirge about what could have been and missed opportunities. They, what do they sing? Ding dong, the witch is dead, right? It's, that's super dark, right? Ding dong, the witch is dead. A house fell on this woman, right? And that's kind of, I, I would suggest to you that the sort of, um, musical underscore of the whole book of Esther is more like Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead than any other music you might imagine. It's not a dirge in a minor key. It's, yes, down goes Haman, right? It, it has that feel about it. So at chapters eight through 10, we've already seen some surprising reversals. Chapters eight through 10 is the consummate reversal. I mean, it is the arrival. It is the rescue of God's people. It is the battle giving way to a feast, which is the name of the message, the battle and the feast. This entire story though of Esther, I think is almost captured by one of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 30 verse five, which says, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I think Psalm 30 verse five could be a banner over the entire book of Esther. In a way, I think Psalm 30 verse five could hang as a banner over the entire story of the Bible. From Genesis three all the way to Revelation 21, the, the story is weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So I think we can retell this story by noticing a few things. Number one, a power shift a power shift. And really the power shift doesn't begin in chapter nine. It begins where we were last week. So flip back to chapter eight for a second. Chapter eight, verse one. And it says this. So Haman has just been hung on the gallows, executed. And it says, that same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. So everybody's in a different position. Haman, the prime minister, is hanging from the gallows. His ring comes off and it's given to Mordecai and Esther gets charge over all of Haman's stuff. Haman's estate falls to the supervision of Esther. So now that we've got all these different people in place, and it seems like this really bodes well for the future, why is Esther then in verse three weeping and wailing and crying out before the king? And the answer is this if you're taking notes, the bad news is Haman's edict is still in force. 
Haman's edict is still in force. And do you remember what the edict said? There were three primary kind of verbs that were used as a cadence in chapter three when, when Haman wrote the original edict that was sent out to the empire. And it was, it was destroy, kill, and annihilate. Those were the three words. Destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, not just any time, don't, don't start now, Wait for the 13th day of the 12th month. Wait for the 13th day of the month of Adar, and that's when you can destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. And that edict can't be revoked. You see in verse 8 of chapter 8, where the king says, A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. So not even the king himself can undo the fact that this first edict from Haman went out to the entire 127 provinces in the Persian Empire. It's sort of like, you know, the movie where the villain is, is mortally wounded and he's right next to the you know, nuclear codes and with his dying breath, you know, he reaches his finger out and punches the nuclear code and then he dies and then you see missile launched, missile launched, you know, on the screen in front of you and you know, even though the villain's dead, the threat is still there. The, the missile is in flight and there's no stopping it now. That's kind of what's going on here. Haman's dead, but the missile's in flight and it's gonna hit its target and it's gonna hit that target on the 13th day of the month of Adar and it can't be undone. So there's the bad news and then there's the good news. Bad news is Haman's edict is still in force. The good news is God's people have favor with the king through a faithful advocate a faithful advocate and you see that's what Esther is doing crying weeping in verse 3 is she is advocating before the king on behalf of her people you see there in verse 5 of chapter 8 she says to the king let a royal edict be written to revoke Haman's decree for and now she's going to identify with her people how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people and you see, once again, we saw this before, so I'm not gonna belabor the point as much, but Esther is assuming this kind of mediator position between the king and the people. The people are under a death sentence. The king has a signet ring. She's asking for a new edict from the king, and she's asking on behalf of the people. And she's perfectly positioned to be in that intercessory role because she's got the blood of the Jews, and she's bound to the king. Right, so you can even see the sense in which that hearkens to something that's coming in the future when Jesus arrives in the fullness of time and he's bound to the king and he's got the blood of the people. He is fully God and he is fully man so he can stand in that gap, in that place. And the law of Haman, as it were, it hangs as a death sentence over the people of God. And she says, I can't bear for this death sentence to hang over my people, so she begs the king, authorize a new edict. I know you can't reverse the first one. Give us a counter edict, another edict, one that will shield God's people from certain destruction. And what does the king do? He takes his ring off and he hands it to Mordecai. And look, this is a really good move for us. If we're the people of God in the Old Testament, we love the fact that that ring is coming off and we love the fact that that ring is being handed to Mordecai. He is the new prime minister, and he is so different than the other guy. And, and in that sense, Mordecai also comes through as this kind of mediator figure, right? As soon as Mordecai, so we're going to talk about the edict in a moment. We'll come back to that. He writes a new counter edict. He drafts it and seals it with the signet ring. 
but the effect of that edict that Mordecai has now written, and now couriers go and they bring this edict just as far as Haman's edict goes, it goes to the ends of the earth, to the whole realm of the Persian empire, and you see the effect of that edict in chapter eight, verse 14. Look there, the couriers rode out in haste on their royal horses at the king's urgent command. The law was also issued in the fortress of Susa. Mordecai, let's look at this picture, went from the king's presence clothed in royal blue and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced and the Jews, so you see that language, shouted, rejoiced, the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor in every province and every city where the king's command and edict reached Gladness and joy took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. So get it, this new edict lands on the world like a gospel. It is like good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Every place the edict goes, gladness goes. Every place the edict goes, joy goes with it, right? Again, we're seeing in Esther and Mordecai these glimpses of the Messiah who will come, which by the way, that shouldn't surprise us. We're supposed to read the Bible looking for, the, uh, looking for early glimpses of the Messiah who will come in the future. Jesus told us to do that in Luke chapter 24 when he takes his disciples through the whole, the law, the prophets, and the writings, and he says, all of that was written concerning me. So if you're gonna read the Old Testament right, read it looking for me. Early hints, foreshadowings, look for me, and we can see something of this glimpse of the Messiah, right? You think about the glimpse that we get of Messiah in, in Esther, in the early part of chapter eight. How do we see Messiah peeking through? Esther, has silenced the accuser, hasn't she? He's, he's hanging on the gallows. Wormtongue is hanging on the gallows. And then what does she do? Now that the accuser has been cast out, she is interceding before the throne. She is interceding before the king on behalf of the people who live under the sentence of death. And Esther is in charge of Haman's estate. So, so his wealth now belongs to her. His real estate belongs to her. She has bound the strong man and she is plundering his stuff. She is plundering his house. It's a beautiful early echo of Christ who will come. And then not only Esther, at the beginning of Esther chapter eight, but Mordecai at the end of chapter eight, you see those words again in verse 15? Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal blue and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Now that is a surprising reversal. We did not see that coming two months ago. Two months ago, this same guy, Mordecai, was vulnerable, he was weeping, he was covered in sackcloth and ashes, he was a man of sorrows, he was acquainted with grief, he was at the king's gate crying out in agony, right? That was Mordecai just two months ago and here he is today and how different he looks. He is striding out of the king's palace, walking toward the royal city and everywhere he goes he is revered. He was reviled but now he is globally revered. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, 
in the 1800s, he, he preached a message about Advent and about the difference between Jesus Christ and his first arrival and in his life and in his ministry and his rejection and then in his second arrival when he comes in kingly, royal regalia from heaven. And here's what he says about the difference. When he returns, Spurgeon writes, he will be the same, yet oh, how changed. Where now the carpenter's smock? Royalty hath now assumed its purple. Where now the toil-worn feet that needed to be washed? They are sandaled with light. Where now the cry, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I, the son of man, have no place to lay my head. Heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. Ah, who would think to recognize in the weary man full of woes the king eternal, immortal, invisible. He is the same, but yet how changed. You that despised him, will you despise him now? You see that same sort of royal regalia about the whole deportment of Mordecai as he walks out of the palace. There's been a shift in, in power and just the sight of Mordecai causes the city to rejoice. It causes some parts of the city to rejoice and other parts of the city to tremble. That's the effect of Mordecai's arrival, right? There's a, a modern hymn that I think wonderfully captures the story of Advent. And it says, when love came down to earth and made his home with men, the hopeless found a hope, the sinner found a friend. Not to the powerful, but to the poor he came and humble, hungry hearts were satisfied again. That's the beauty of when the gospel lands in the city. That's how I pray happens here in our city increasingly, through our lives, through our witness, through other churches, through their witness, that, that hopeless hearts would be satisfied in Christ, that sinners would find a friend. I pray even this morning that the hopeless would find a hope, that sinners would find a friend. You would find this morning there is a redeemer who takes away all of our sins through his death on the cross and we can have him, we can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We've got a gospel that deals with the weight of our sin and the weight of our burdens, right? So Esther is in charge of Haman's estate. Mordecai has the ring of authority, so good things are in store. So there's a power shift. Second, there's a holy war. A power shift and a holy war. So you remember Haman kind of hit the missile launch code right before he died. And that edict that Haman had drafted with the king's signet ring that is now irrevocable, that edict said basically, everyone in the empire who's not a Jew, you have a one-day hunting license. And it's a free-for-all. There's no limit on this hunting license. It's a one-day, no-limit hunting license to kill every Jew you can put your eyes on. And, and you gotta wait though, you gotta wait for the 13th day of the month of Adar. The street date of Haman's final solution was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. And here we see another reversal that's, that's brewing here in our text because Esther, she's pleading with the king for this counter edict. The king gives the signet ring to Mordecai and Mordecai draws up the counter edict in chapter eight. So the rest of chapter eight, I'm not gonna read it all, but the rest of chapter eight is Mordecai drawing up the paperwork of this new counter edict that is gonna save God's people. So what's in Mordecai's edict? 
The counter edict permits the Jews to defend themselves. That's the new edict. And it goes out just as far as the first one goes and this new edict permits the Jews to defend themselves. So if you go back and you read Haman's, we're not gonna do that today, but if you go back and you did wanna read chapter three, verse 10 through 15, you would see, it's pretty interesting, you could geek out about this later on, but just lay chapter three, verse 10 through 15 next to chapter eight, verse nine through 15, and you, what you see is Mordecai just took the first edict as a boilerplate. He took it as a template. He, he stole all the language of Haman's edict and just changed the names of who's under threat now. He just changed the names in the circumstances, right? So let me just quickly say a few things about the edict because this is one of those passages uh, where Christians, we don't know what to do with this, right? What, what do we do with text? and most of them are found in the Old Testament. What do we do with texts where we read in the Old Testament and we find God's people pulling out swords and killing people? What do we do with Old Testament violence when God's Old Testament people go Old Testament on other people, right? That can kind of break us down. It's like, what do we, what do, we do with that? And, and if we don't read it correctly, we can sort of just rip that right out of its covenantal context, stick it in some other context in the world and say, look, we, we bombed the abortion clinic because... Right, that, that's, we do this thing because they did this thing. It's just biblical. I was just being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. I'm doing exactly what Esther did back there, exactly what Mordecai did and the Jews did. Um, so, a, a few words about that. Remember, one, remember where we are situated in covenantal history. So we are not in the Old Testament. Uh, we are not fighting for... Israel, the land of Israel with a palace and a king on David's throne. That, that is not the situation we live in right now. Matter of fact, Jesus shows up on the scene and he clarifies. He says, my kingdom is what? Not of this world. <laughs> not of this world. And then he goes on to say this. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. Like fight as in with actual swords. And you might say to Jesus right there, because that was in John 18, you might say to Jesus, well, hold on a second, because Peter was just fighting. Peter actually pulled off a sword and lopped off a guy's ear. And Jesus would say, but I put it back on. I put it back on because, because Peter saw too many movies, right? Peter was, it was a, it was a kingdom misfire. He didn't understand the moment that we're in. What would Paul say later on? He would say, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principles. We've got a deeper devil. There's a devil deeper down. Paul said, that's the one that we're fighting. Our warfare is done. So Paul says, put on your armor in Ephesians chapter six. And guess what? It's spiritual armor. It's not actual armor. The sword is God's word, uh, right? Uh, the shield is a shield of faith. So these, these are spiritual weapons. Paul says, we pull down strongholds and we do so by prayer. We don't pull down actual buildings, we pull down strongholds in prayer. So you and me praying, that's spiritual warfare. You and me shining as lights, our good deeds so that they would glorify the Father, that's spiritual warfare. You and me proclaiming the gospel in the world and the power of the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit then takes those who are dead in sin and those who are in the kingdom of darkness and pulls them out of that kingdom and into the kingdom of his beloved son, that's warfare. That's how Christians do battle. Prayer and mission is where we do battle. So, so back to this, all right? So that, that's a clarifier about where we are situated. But Mordecai's edict, let's just talk about it for a second. 
because we see a couple of things that I think are important for us to see. One, we see the motive. And the motive comes through because three times, you wanna come back and look at this, in chapter nine, verse 10, and 15, and 16. Three times we're told that the Jews did not seize any plunder. Now, again, Haman's decree was the boilerplate. So Mordecai just took that decree and said, whatever he decreed, I'm just gonna change the names. So that, so that means that Mordecai's edict technically gave permission. If they come to kill you, you can kill them in self-defense. They came to kill you and take your stuff, you can kill them in self-defense and take their stuff. So that was the Mordecai's counter edict. But nobody took the stuff. They defended themselves, but they didn't take, and they said it three times, we didn't take their stuff, we didn't take their stuff, we didn't take their stuff, which, which tells you what? Tells you the motive is, we're not trying to benefit from this war. Uh, the only benefit we want is to live to the 14th day of the month of Adar. They were gonna come exterminate us on the 13th day. We just wanna make it to day 14 of the 12th month and then we're happy, we're satisfied. We don't need their, their goods and their plunder. We just wanna live, right? So motive comes through. Second, the rules of engagement come through because in contrast to Haman's edict, which was an edict of aggression, this edict is an edict of self-defense. It's not a carte blanche. It's not, it's not hey, Haman gave them freedom to kill any Jew that they wanted to kill, so you kill any non-Jew that you wanna kill. No, it was if they come to you using lethal force, you can use lethal force to stop them and protect yourself. That was the edict. Any attacker who came at them with lethal force, they could use lethal force in self-defense. So, so here, given this new edict that goes out, and given the fact that if you're a Persian and you, you read the room, um, you, you can tell that the, the winds have changed, that now power is centralized around the protection of the Jews. So now you're taking a great personal risk to still operate as if that second edict didn't come. 75,000 people apparently so hated the Jews that they would risk their lives to act on the first edict as if the second edict hadn't come, which tells you what? None of these aggressors had to die. None of these aggressors had to die. You know, the last mark of the defeat of the enemy's plans is Haman's 10 sons hanging on the gallows. It, it is a complete and total reversal. You think about how total that reversal is. So just walk back for a second to chapter five when Haman is riding high. Haman is intolerably high. Haman just comes back from the first banquet with Esther and he says, Zeresh, baby, bring all my friends. Bring the whole family in. You gotta hear how I am situated in prominence in the kingdom. And he brags all night long. Before he builds the gallows outside to kill Mordecai, he brags for hours. And what does he say? And heaven's listening, by the way, as he boasts. And what does he boast about? He boasts about three things. In chapter five, he boasts about his vast wealth, which Esther, by the way, now has. He boasts about his high position, which Mordecai now has. And he boasts about his 10 powerful boys who are all hanging on the gallows outside. It is a complete and total reversal. And he laughs his way outside and he builds the gallows on which he would hang Mordecai and he himself 
is hung there. He is, as the old saying goes, he was hoisted on his own petard. He was, he was caught in his own trap. God of the twist ending. The God whose foolishness is wiser than men. Haman had, he had the temerity, he had the audacity to say, let's roll the dice, that'll be fun. Let's roll the dice to find out how long the Jews get to live. This dice will decide. And he throws, and the dice is called the poor. The lot was called the poor, P-U-R. And he said, let's roll the dice, and the dice will decide how long the Jews get to live. And the lot was cast, and the date was decided. It's gonna be the 13th day of the month of Adar. And you can imagine Haman running gleefully over to his calendar, flipping to the very back, the 12th month of his calendar, and just, just big red heart over the 13th day of the month of Adar. And inside, maybe inside that heart, he writes, vengeance is mine, and heaven was watching. And he writes, vengeance is mine inside that heart on the 13th day, and it's as though in the dark humor of God, God says, yes. Yes, vengeance is mine. Amen to that. Satire. The dark humor of heaven, right? What we meet here in the story of Esther is the God who, we saw this a couple weeks ago, who, who turns the hearts of kings. The God about whom it is said that the lot is cast into the lap and its every decision is of the Lord. The God who says, Anybody who blesses my people, them I will bless. Anyone who curses my people, I'm coming after you. Anyone who curses my people, I will curse. Christian friend, we will suffer in this world. We will undergo trials, but our future is so certain. It, Romans 8 leverages this hope, and it doesn't leverage it on the basis of some kind of prosperity gospel that you'll put your trust in Jesus and all your pain and suffering will go away. Romans 8 says, we were delivered to the slaughter every day. Every day we're out here dying like sheep going to the slaughter, but we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can stop us now. It leverages this hope that the God who is sovereign is the God who is for us. That's where the Christian's hope is anchored. And so we come full circle, a power shift, a holy war, and a joyous feast. A joyous feast. It was this battle that gave way to this feast, you know, but the battle was very real, right? On the 13th day, it got very real all day long, all over the empire. The Christian's battle is very real, isn't it? I remember hearing an interview uh, with David Pallison, Christian leader and David Pallison. David Pallison uh, is now with the Lord. He was the executive director of the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, a, a fine brother, a wise and humble, gifted man uh, who loved the Lord and loved the word and he loved to apply the gospel to hurting people. And this Christian leader asked David Pallison, he said, why do so many Christians do 12-step programs? And he said, it kind of being the devil's advocate, he said, 12-step programs often have no gospel in them. Why do Christians do a 12-step program? And, and Pallison said, he said, I think it's because uh, they get in that kind of environment, all this, his phrase was, all the bell ringing of human experience. And then he unpacks that and he says, you know, a person in Alcoholics Anonymous, they walk into a room and they know that they're not alone. They know that the other people in the room can hear the worst of it and they can say, Bro, we get it. Like we're there, 
right there with you. We understand the struggle. It's a powerful struggle, and we're here. Keep talking. That's why they go. And, and too often, I've said this before, but too often the church can be just the opposite. It can be the place where a bunch of Christians get into the same room, whether it's this room or small groups or whatever. We get into the same room and we all pretend everything is going great when our lives are coming apart at the seams. The gospel proposes to us a more excellent way where we can come step out into the light, into a safe community where you can confess the worst of it and you'll hear somebody, your brother, your sister say, I get it. I get it, let's walk together. We'll do battle together. I'll stand at your side. Friends, admitting that the battle is hard is not the same as giving in to unbelief. Admitting the battle is hard, so often the first step in defiant hope is often the first step in fighting the fight of faith. And here's the truth for us, we always have reason to hope in the Lord. I hope you glean that from our study of Esther. We always have reason to hope in the Lord. He is the one who has been with us in the battle. He is the one who is inviting us to the feast. He is the God of the twist ending. And what a twist ending this is. You just take it in, Haman's edict and Mordecai's edict. You set them side by side. Haman's edict comes down and the people of God lament and the wicked rejoice. Mordecai's counter edict comes down and the wicked lament and the people of God rejoice. The music starts and they say, what are we gonna call this party that we throw every year? What was that thing that Haman threw to decide the day that we'd all die? The poor. Let's call it the Feast of Purim. Here is the effect. Look at chapter nine, verse 17. They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th. And it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. You'll see those words, feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and 14th days of the month. They rested on the 15th day of the month and it became a day of feasting and rejoices. This this explains why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews and all the King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far, He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year because during those days, the Jews gained relief from their enemies. I love this. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. To to this very day, the biggest party among the Jews in the annual calendar is the Feast of Purim. It is the time to break out the dancing shoes. It is the time to sing. It is the time to shout. Um, So when I was in elementary school, (laughs) there was one dance move that everybody wanted to do. And uh, I had one goal, to learn one dance move, and it was the moonwalk. Because in 1982, the album Thriller came out, 
1987, the album Bad came out. So I basically moonwalked through my elementary school years. Uh, pretty much, I found some way, you know, like when in doubt, I moonwalked. Like, you know, if, it's a, if I want to get the eyes of the girls, moonwalk. If there's an awkward silence in this room, moonwalk, right? Just, just anything I wanted to do, I'm trying to fit that in. Matter of fact, when my mom, <laughs> when she took me to the store to buy new shoes during my elementary school years, if she was taking me to the store to buy dress shoes, there was one test for those dress shoes. Do they or do they not moonwalk credibly, right? So I put on that dress shoe, it's like, mm, it's not these, let's try those other ones, right? I put those on, these are the ones, right? And it all depended on whether they moonwalked or not because who wants a new pair of shoes if they don't dance in the 1980s? And I guarantee, I feel like this is so, such a sure reality, right? That the kids who got ready for the Feast of Purim on the 13th and 14th and 15 days in some places, they were going and finding their moonwalking shoes. They were going and finding the shoes that dance because this was the biggest party in the calendar. It involves, uh, you see those words there? The celebration involves feasting, rejoicing, and giving gifts to one another and to the poor. Why, why give gifts? You know, you, notice what they're not doing. There's been a lot of darkness in Esther, but they're not burning effigies of Haman. Why? Because Haman's gone. That whole dark satire piece, that can go away now. It lives maybe in the word Purim, but from now on, what we do is we feast, we celebrate, we rejoice, and we give people gifts. Why? Because kids, on the 13th day of Adar, we almost lost everything we have. But we're alive, and we've got gifts and presents to give. And there are people who are in need and we're gonna give them presents on this day every year. So we remember good news, right? Isn't that just the kind of culture that the gospel creates? Joy is the culture of the worship of the church. Joy is the culture of the nurture of the church. Joy is the culture of the mission of the church. It's joy among the saints, joy in the city, and joy to the world. We are the people who always have reason to hope in the Lord. And lastly, for now, God's people are called both to a battle and to a feast. So we're still in the midst of battle, aren't we? In our lives this week, there will be rhythms in the providence of God, rhythms of battle and of feasting, rhythms of battle and of resting. And sometimes it might feel like in God's providence, we're walking through a season where it's just battle and that's it. But even there, we hope. So you know that story I was referring to earlier about Hitler's speech. There was a rabbi who was born in 1911 and he wrote about, he wrote a book called the Purim Anthology. And so he lived and he watched the things that were going on in Nazi Germany to the Jews. And here's what he wrote. In a speech on January 30th, 1944, Adolf Hitler declares that if the Nazis went down in defeat, the Jews could celebrate a triumphant second Purim. <laughs> Tellingly, less than three years later, on October the 16th, 1946, 10 Nazi chieftains were hung on the gallows at Nuremberg, an act eerily similar to the hanging of Haman's 10 sons. One of them clearly perceived the connection when led to the scaffold, he shouted, Purim Feast, 1946. The God of surprising reversals. Christian friend, 
the battle that you are facing, the battle that you faced this week won't have the last word. The thing that has been stealing your joy this year won't have the last word. Why? Because there's a banner that hangs over the entire book of Esther and it's this, weeping may endure for the night but joy comes in the morning.